My name is Bob Priest. I get the honor this morning of standing in for our pastor, Greg Montague. When it starts getting hot like this, I'm a Connecticut boy. If it hit 90, that was really hot out there. So I start thinking about the mountains out in Colorado. And uh, we've already had our trip out there for this year, so I'm just going to have to endure. But part of that trip for us this time wasn't all just just pleasure and enjoyment, although we had a really nice time, got to see part of Wyoming and Colorado. Part of it was we had the, my wife Sandra and I had the sad privilege of joining in a family memorial service. Part of our out-of-town extended family in the last couple of years lost a young man and an older man. And so they took us to a spot in Colorado, one of those vast, wide-open areas that I've never experienced growing up, but I'm blown away every time I go out there. It's a very special place for the family. They selected that as a place to scatter these two men's ashes to have a time of celebration of life, which was really what it was for those guys. We had a time to grieve, spread their ashes next to a river and shared in that celebration. It's an event that I know Sandra and I will not soon forget. I don't think anyone who's there will. That branch of our family is blessed to have an older cousin. His name is Steve. He's been in ministry most of his adult life ever since he got done with military service as a young man. And the faith tradition that Steve has been a part of that whole time is a little different than ours. They, they have their uh, officiants, their ministers, actually wear this beautiful white robe. It's long. It goes all the way to the ground. So he was wearing that. And then he had, uh, I believe it's called a stole. It's, a, it's kind of a thing that hangs down from the shoulders Also very white, but had some decoration to it. And Steve is at that age that some of us are at. What's the Bible say? The the crown of splendor we wear. Gray hair is a crown of splendor gained uh, by a righteous life. And Steve's hair is strikingly white. He's just retired recently. And so he made quite a figure there in his white garment and the white stole and the striking white hair. As Steve started to share some words of comfort and a couple of scripture readings with us, uh, one of the children in our party, a a little five-year-old girl, was taking this all in. And, of course, she'd been briefed by mom and dad, this is a, a time to be still. This is a quiet time. But she's five years old, and she had a question. So she quietly looks up at her dad, and she points over at Steve, and she says, is that God? <laughs> and her dad says, no, no, sweetie, that's Cousin Steve. Oh, he looks like God. <laughs> it's pretty cute. There's a five-year-old's perspective of, of what God might be like, of what God might look like. And I chuckled, too, like we all did. And we can chuckle at a five-year-old's perspective. But what about us? How do we, grown up Mature people form our perspectives, our conceptions of what God might be like. When you come into my home, Sanders in my home, you'll see this hanging up if you look just to the right. Not that, but this next thing. <laughs> you'll see this hanging up just to the right after you close the door. Can you read it? Tom told me it was kind of like an eye chart for some of you in the back. So that's, he, he put the words up there to this side. Sandra, my interior decorator, has this hanging there. It's kind of some welcoming words to people that come in our door, isn't it? 
And really, as you're leaving, it's, it's words of an expectant blessing. You can see where Sandra got those words. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Isn't that a nice word of welcome? Anyone who knows my sweetie, my Sandra, knows she tries to live these words out in her life. She shares that kind of love and hope with everyone she knows. Friends and family here and all the way to Guatemala. She, she brings beauty and benefit to all. That's my plug for my sweetie for the day. Okay? But I'm delighted every time I walk in the door of my house to see words like that up. Sandra got that. She didn't make those words up. She got that from a prophecy in the old Hebrew book of uh, Jeremiah. I know Greg talked about Jeremiah a few weeks ago, so maybe that's fresh in your mind. It's the verse Jeremiah 29, 11. I'm sure many of you knew that already. It happens to be a favorite passage for many Christians as we try to express our idea, our conception of who God is might be. I had a friend tell me today, this verse is actually tattooed on her body, that she, she thinks that much of this perspective that she wanted it to be a part of her. Our God in that perspective is someone who plans for our best, keeps us from harm, one who holds our future in his hands. Hey, is that God? Is what that banner says tell the truth? about God? For many of us sitting here today, we'd probably immediately say, yes, it is. That's the God I know. Some of us might say, well, yeah, I, I hope that's God. That's the God I'm hoping I'm getting acquainted with out there. But that, that conception of God is really difficult for many people in our world to get a hold of, isn't it? Many people in our world would not go along with that statement. A lot of folks, if they walked into Sanders in my home and they saw that banner and understood that that was associated with our faith in God, they might politely be quiet, but if, if they told me what was really going on, if they really wanted to express what was inside their minds, they might sound something like this, you Bible people, you need to wake up and look at reality. You're hanging fantasies on your wall, Mrs. Priest. Your faith is just... It's just wishful thinking. The life that kind of God would provide is not at all like what we're experiencing out here in reality. Not even the most wealthy, not even the most influential among us get to enjoy that kind of life. Come on, Christians. Get real. Your ideas about God, well, they're, they're as misconceived as that five-year-old child's are. Do you have friends and family in your circles that maybe have shared that kind of feeling about God, that they have a tough time um, reconciling the realities of our world with a good and loving God? We can understand that, can't we? Deep down, we understand with all the sadness and the hurt and the loss that we see in this world, we can see how people get to a place like that. We can see how we struggle with the image of a good and loving God. So what do we do about that? Do we just live with our differences? Is there any way to reconcile our reality with the God of Jeremiah 29, 11? 
During our time today, I'd like to have us consider how the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, the defining image of our faith, I want, to, I want to talk about and consider how the cross can begin this work of reconciling the difficulties we have in this reality we live in with the loving God that we all want to know and hope is there. Why don't we start with an opening prayer real quick, and then I'm going to walk us through uh, a few scriptures and see if, uh, see if you can consider these things with me. Let's bow our heads together. And Father, we are... Uh, Thankful for all the music of the morning. Thankful for your presence among us. We just pray, God, that you would reveal the truth about yourself to us. Help us to not be satisfied with just our own ideas or caricatures of you that others have put in our minds. Help us to have our minds open to what you want to share of yourself. God, we know this cross and what took place there is really important to you. Help us not to miss it as we read from your word this morning. Give us, give us eyes to see, ears to hear what you want to speak into our hearts. We pray this through your son. Amen. Okay, before, uh, I think really to get an understanding of the cross, we need to kind of finish out this Jeremiah 29 passage. Because all we looked at was Jeremiah 29, 11. I told you it was part of a prophecy. Jeremiah was a prophet, and God shared really deep insights with him. But, but Jeremiah 29, 11 is followed immediately by Jeremiah 29, 12, and 13. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to read that to you and let you hear the whole thing. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me. And come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. Did you catch that last word? Captivity. You know, words like prosperity and hope and a future don't carry any meaning for people that live in captivity. What Jeremiah is communicating is if we haven't found God, you and I are living in captivity. We're living like slaves. We're right to be troubled by that reality. We're right to be troubled what goes on in a world that's marked by bondage and captivity and enslavement. We need to be freed. How will that happen? What is the clue that Jeremiah leaves to us? Well, it starts with finding God, the true God. And Jeremiah is trying to explain in those verses in very personal terms that seeking and finding God isn't just some existential experience we have one time in our life that we go, oh, cool, that was neat. It isn't just some intellectual pursuit that we may uh, look into in in our free time. The sincerity of our search for God is critical to finding this release that that we need from captivity. The sincerity of our search for God is really linked to the personal admission that we need someone to set us free. You understand what I'm saying? It's not just some sideshow. We have to get to a place of sincerity in our hearts where we understand and acknowledge 
I'm a, I'm a slave, and I can't do anything about it. I need someone else to set me free. In a word, our starting place is humility. Humility. That doesn't come easily to me. I don't think it probably comes easily to many of us. That's nothing new. It's been hard for people to have humility forever. We won't look at it, but in John chapter 8, there's a, there's a place where Jesus is talking to some of the, the strong Jewish leaders about this very thing, the need for freedom and the, the, the fact that they are enslaved. And their response is not humility. It's arrogance. We are sons of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anybody. How can you say that we need to be set free? It's difficult in that day. It's difficult in our day. We, we live in the land of the free, right? But the starting point for finding God is humility. It has to be at the forefront as we engage in this search for God. How did Jeremiah kind of frame up that that uh, humble, seeking posture. Look at the words he used. I had uh, Catherine highlight those on the slides for us. He says this. (laughs) And back one. Okay, sorry about that, Catherine. I kind of put her on the spot. Look at what I've highlighted here. This is the posture of humility that we need to have as seekers. It says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. The, the starting place for this is to ask, am I doing that? Are you doing that? <laughs> Or have you closed off a part of your heart to God? You know, when we live in captivity, it's real easy to let the things that happen to us kind of harden up little parts of our heart, isn't it? Our expectations for life go unmet. Our preconceived notions of what God should be doing or what God should be undoing for our benefit or maybe preventing in the first place. They, they meet with these, they meet, our notions meet with disappointment is the way I put it down here. And little parts of our heart can get hard. And it's hard to do anything wholeheartedly when you have a hard heart, let alone seek God. One reason finding God can feel unattainable to us is because in captivity, our hearts harden a little bit more as time goes on. So we miss him. We're not even sure what the right place to look would be. For some of us, God could be standing right next to us, and our hearts are so hard that we wouldn't recognize him. When you seek God with all your heart, when you seek God with all your heart, do you know where, you're, do you, know where you will find him? I just thought of this when I was getting ready for this lesson. When I seek God with all my heart, I'll find him at the place where he seeks me with all his heart. Isn't that good? Can you make a bumper sticker out of that or something? When we seek God with all our heart, we find him at the place where he seeks us with all his heart. 
On the surface, that place seems to be in the most unlikely place on earth. But the Bible tells us that that place where God wants to meet us is going to require us to go to a place of brutal torture and execution and encounter through the scriptures with the killing of a young teacher, a miracle worker named Jesus who was killed in the prime of his life. God is found there. At the cross. In the person of Jesus Christ as he suffers and dies, and then with power, and what the Bible calls a new indestructible kind of life, he rises from the dead three days later. It's at the cross that God wants to meet us. How can that be? How can that possibly be the place where God wants us to find him? I'd like to read through three brief passages from the New Testament book of Hebrews with you and kind of explore that question a little bit of of what the cross can teach us about coming to know God. There's three passages because there's three waves um, that the Bible is going to illustrate for us that we truly are enslaved. We're, We're in captivity and how God and what he did at the cross can free us and bring us into a new relationship with him. If you want to turn and read along with me, obviously the slides will be up on the screen, but Hebrews chapter 2 is where I'm going to start. It's page 728 in the little red Bibles in the back of the chair. I don't think you will find any of these ways that God says we're enslaved surprising. As I read them, I thought, yeah, that, that's me. That's clearly me and most of humanity right there. The very first way that the scripture says we are enslaved is so obvious. It's to death. We are enslaved to death. We cannot keep ourselves alive is the way it's expressed in Psalm 22. Any plans that God has for hope and a future for our lives are immediately derailed because right down the tracks, death is awaiting for us. We have all kinds of ways to try to dodge that truth, don't we? In captivity, where we live, we have all kind of ways to try to ignore that fact. We can stay busy. We can pursue achievement, making money. We can pursue pleasure in our lives. Maybe we uh, recognize it's coming, but we just, you know, put our fingers in our ears and cover our eyes and just say, I'm going to try to postpone that as long as I can. So we exercise maniacally and we diet obsessively. Then when death breaks in, for many of us, the response is rage, shaking a fist at the heavens, hurling blame at God, hurling all of our unanswered why questions to him. Why, God, did that person have to die? My mom, my son, my little baby. On the flip side, where death is concerned, many of us feel like death is unfairly delayed I'm old. How long do I have to languish here? Why is death so delayed? And what we've discovered over the centuries is we are powerless in this regard. We're enslaved to death with no way out. When we come to the cross, we find a God who shows us that he has the power to handle this for us. I think it's fascinating God doesn't just tell us 
from a safe distance. That's how you can take care of this problem over there. God comes and gets involved. He shows us that he has the power that we lack. Our creator, the Bible tells us, the source of life for everyone humbles himself. He enters our little prison and and he subjects himself to our captivity to death. And as he rises with resurrection power on the third day, he's confirming for all of us that he's not the God of death. He's the God of life. Listen to this passage from Hebrews chapter 2, 14, 15. Hopefully you've been able to turn there. Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. That's how God wants to set us free. Can you take that truth in this morning? Have you experienced that freedom from death that Jesus is offering because of his death and resurrection? I remember the first time I read that, and I imagine some of us might be looking at that and saying, wait a second, God... That's not exactly the freedom from death that I was hoping for. That's not the way we want freedom from death to be. We we want there to be no death right now. We want to be free from death right now, God. We We want what we want. When we want it, we want to be God, don't we? We want to dictate the terms. That's where this part about humility comes in again, the God we meet at the cross, who modeled humility by becoming flesh and blood, is asking the same thing from you and me. He's asking us to respond with humility and trust him with the proper time in history to finally eradicate death from our world. By the resurrection of Jesus, he showed that he has the power. It's not a matter of that he can't do it. It's a matter that the timing is in his hands. Can you humble yourself and trust him with that? You know, we throw the faith word around a lot in church and religious circles. That's really the heart of the word faith. It's trust. Can I put my trust in a God who would submit himself to death and trust that that means my death is not going to be the end? Will you believe that Jesus' death was for you? Will you believe that this humble God has a plan and a future for you? That's where it all begins as we seek God. That's how we find him at the cross. The God we seek is a humble God who wants to set us free from slavery to death. There's there's more that, that God wants us to know about him as we're seeking him with all his heart. You know, if if all God wanted to reveal to us was that he had power over death and that that we could rise again someday, he didn't need a cross, did he? All he had to do was die somehow, and then he could rise again. So why not God, you know, like Socrates, a few hundred years before Jesus, he died from poisoning. That would have been a lot simpler, wouldn't it? 
John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, had his, his head taken off. Maybe uh, a hangman's noose or the quick thrust of a sword. Why, God, didn't you just do it that way? Why not even just let Jesus live to be an old man and then let him die and then show that you had power to help him rise again? I think it's because there's something else that God wants to show us about himself and about our captivity that he, that he allows this horrible experience of Christ on the cross. Just as we can't keep ourselves alive, this second kind of enslavement is this, we cannot alleviate our suffering. Now, we've made great advances in our world. There's no doubt with technology and hard work, we've improved many things. We've put many resources in places that have relieved the suffering of many people. But it just keeps coming, doesn't it? Hurt and harm just keep coming our way because we're the problem. It's an old British poet from generations ago, uh, Alfred Tennyson, Lord Alfred Tennyson. And he lost a friend to a brain aneurysm really early in life, a good friend of his. He wrote this long poem, can't tell you I've read the whole thing, in, in memoriam to his friend. But this line is one. He says, never morning, war to evening, but some heart did break. Never morning, war to evening, but some heart did break. Isn't that true? We cannot alleviate all the suffering in our world. If all God wanted to reveal to us was that he had power to free us from death, he didn't need a cross. But he wanted to reveal for, for us that our suffering has purpose and meaning. Listen, listen to what this says. We're still in Hebrews 2. I picked verses 10 and 18 for us to read. God, God for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children to glory. That's us, and that's our future, okay? And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing. He is able to help us when we are being tested. The one for whom and through whom Everything exists. The one who can heal with a thought, with a word, with the wave of a hand, did not choose to exempt himself from suffering. On the cross, we see that Jesus was being made a perfect leader, it says. That word perfect means complete. Jesus was being complete in his human, being made complete in his human nature by going through the suffering that he did. And suffering can work purposes in our lives that we may not always be able to discern as well. That can give us some hope, guys. Because it's the same thing with death. We want it to end right now. We don't want suffering to go on. But we can have some hope in suffering because we can see a purpose beyond what we may just be going through. And we never have to wonder... We never have to doubt, does my God really know what I'm going through down here because of what Jesus went through on the cross? I wrote down a few ways I thought maybe it could help us identify with Jesus' physical struggle. Are you in, phys are you in physical pain? You suffer physically in your body somehow? Jesus knows that kind of suffering. He's experienced that. 
He was scourged, we're told. They, they whipped and turned his back to ribbons, basically. He was uh, crucified, nails through both hands and his feet. They pressed a crown of thorns with these huge thorns into his scalp. Jesus knows physical suffering. He's been there with you. Are you oppressed by people in power over you in your life? You know, Jesus was turned over by the leaders of his people to the Roman government, the ones that were the dictatorship at the time. The people who prosecuted him couldn't really find a good reason even to hold Jesus, and yet he ended up at execution. Jesus knows what it feels like to be oppressed by people in power. Have those closest to you failed you at times? That can be one of the hardest things to take if our suffering has been caused by the people right in our circle. Jesus was infamously betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas Iscariot, right? But all the rest of them denied and deserted him in his greatest time of need. Jesus knows the suffering that the ones closest to us can bring. Do you experience shame? Shame over something maybe you've done to bring harm to others. Maybe shame because of something someone else has done to you. Right or wrong, do you experience shame? Do you carry that with you? You know, Jesus was stripped of his clothing, beaten, mocked, spat upon, hung up in public display for all to see as he was killed and ridiculed at the time. Our Lord Jesus knows shame. He knows what that feels like for us. Because he's experienced this excruciating suffering, we're told in that verse, the Bible says he's able to help us through ours. One of my favorite speakers, you you guys may have heard him on the radio, his name is Ravi Zacharias. I won't say this as well as he does, but he basically often says the cross shows us we can trust that there is meaning and purpose in our suffering because Jesus Christ, while he was in agony on the cross, was right in the center of God's will. He was fulfilling God's purpose in the midst of his suffering and opening up freedom for all of us who are in captivity. A third aspect, and quickly as we finish up, a third aspect of our captivity, a further weakness that we cannot overcome alone, is addressed at the cross. But this time, instead of joining us in our weakness, as he did in death, as he did in suffering, God intervenes for us in a way that we can't legitimately intervene for ourselves. What's your natural response when you realize, I've done wrong, I've offended, I've, I've made trouble for someone, I, I've made problems, I've violated someone's trust? The natural response we have is guilt. We have this little thing called a conscience built into us. And we can carry around a guilty conscience for years. We may try to make amends, and we may, and still feel the guilt for what we caused. And then there's other things we can't amend. They'll never be made right. Do you walk around sometimes feeling the the sack of rocks over your shoulder, the guilty conscience that wants to burden you down? 
Jesus cannot participate in that. He's never done anything that would cause a guilty conscience. But at the cross, he was able to do something powerful on our behalf. The third passage is from Hebrews chapter 9. I can just read it to you if you like. It's Hebrews 9.14. It says this, How much more than will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. Cleanse our consciences. His offer to us from the cross is a clear conscience. Forgiveness that says, I've taken care of all that. That's all been washed away. And now you're free. You don't have to carry that anymore. You're free to live in a new life. A life where you serve the God of Jeremiah 29.11. A God who has extraordinary plans for you. Plans for, to prosper us and not to harm us. Plans to give us future and a hope. Some, somehow, in the deep mysteries of God, Jesus was able to offer himself in exchange for our judgment, our guilt, the punishment that should have been laid on each one of us. And you and me... And to use Narnian language, all the sons of Adam and all the daughters of Eve can know freedom from the captivity we've been in because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. You will seek him, and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart. You will seek him, and you'll find him to be this kind of God, this Jeremiah twenty nine eleven kind of God. You'll find him in the person of Jesus, suffering and dying on the cross through his resurrection, providing us freedom, freedom from our death, freedom through suffering, and the freedom of a clear conscience. That's the God we're looking for. You know, uh, a lot of times I sit out here in the blue chairs, and someone was kind enough to, to put a cross up there on the wall. Sometimes I'll just sit there and I'll look at that and I'll I'll try to understand what went on there. And if you have times in the days ahead where the cross of Christ is coming to your mind and you're trying to understand and a little voice inside says, Hey, is that God? That's God. That's where we can find him. If you haven't trusted him, with this captivity of your soul, I hope you'll, you'll make a decision to release that to him today. Let him cleanse you. Let him give you confidence and hope that your suffering is not in vain. Your death is not the end. That's the God that we know. Thank you guys for your attention today. I'd like to have a stand and we'll have a closing prayer and uh, go on with our day. Father, we're so grateful for this message from your word, for the freedom that you offer, for the truth that you pour into this reality of ours. Help us to take hold of it in the places where we just can't understand. God, be close to us and help us with your spirit to know your plans for us. And thank you for these good people and the way they serve you in so many ways. I pray that as we leave now, 
we would have that same heart that you had to come enter into our difficulty. Help us to have that heart for the people around us and bring love and blessing wherever we go. Pray for our our, uh, wonderful Pastor Greg and his wife that you would refresh them in this time away and uh, bless them in some special way with your presence close to them. God, I'm thankful for the the ministries that happen here. Just thank you that we get to be part of of something like this during our time here. We know there's people that that are hurting right now. Some may be in this crowd. We know we have friends in the hospital that are hurting. God, just... Be close to them, touch them, um, heal them. And if that's not your will, we pray that that you'd give them your grace and strength to make it through their suffering to you. Pray this all through the name of your, your wonderful son, Jesus. And amen. Thank you all.